Welcome one and all to Chasing Cutoffs, bringing you the trail running news and views from the back of the pack. Well, hello again, friends. Welcome back to the show. My name is Ben Mead, your hobbled host, and I am so excited about this week's interview. If you have dreams of running UTMB, this is the interview that you want to hear. It is the back of the pack UTMB special. (laughs) A few months late, perhaps, but better late than never. And I'm so excited to introduce you to this athlete from the UK, all the way across the pond. But before we do that, let's jump into this week's race roundup. Well, as always, there are some incredible back of the pack athletes out there just crushing it and getting it done. And this week is no exception. First and foremost, I want to give a shout out to Andrea Lear of Chatsworth, California, who crushed DFL at the San Jacinto 50K. This is a 50K out in the Mount San Jacinto State Wilderness in Idlewild, California. And about her race, Andrea says, Certainly not my first race against cutoffs, but my very first and proudly earned DFL. Very happy I decided to push on through and get it done. I will always get my full money's worth of race registration fees. Next year, I'll be 60 and moving up age divisions, so I'm looking forward to possibly podium and chasing cutoffs at the same time. (laughs) And my cheesy quote for the podcast list is finishing is winning. Well, that is not cheesy, Andrea. That is awesome. And I could not agree more. Congratulations on your DFL finish. Well, there were two amazing, historic, awesome races that went down very recently. And one of them, of course, was Pinhoti out in Alabama. I think this was their 15th running of the race. And Josh Nunez of Atlanta, Georgia, actually just narrowly missed the DFL podium. Josh came in fourth from the back. And about his race, Josh says, I've always been a middle-of-the-pack runner, so coming into Pinhoti, cutoff wasn't even something I had looked into. Seeing as this was my first 100, one might rightly think I was naive not even knowing the cutoffs. The first 50 went very well. I was on pace to finish in 26 hours. However, by aid station 10, I felt awful. Eating helped tremendously, and I took in hot food at every aid station after that. The next unexpected challenge was literally falling asleep on my feet coming out of mile 70. My big slowdown as I fixed my stomach and I was falling asleep caught up with me at mile 81 when one of the aid station volunteers told me I was 30 minutes ahead of the cutoff. As I left, the sun rose and my sleepiness vanished and my stomach remained calm and I was able to maintain a pace which kept me ahead of the cutoff for the rest of the race. Josh, that is awesome. Congratulations on finishing your first 100. You got it done. But Josh wasn't the only one out there running Pinhoti. Chris Fox of Atlanta, Georgia, crushed second on the glorious DFL podium. And about his race, he says, this is my second Pinhoti. I finished in 2017, and I finished this year, too. The race sure was pretty, but I wasn't. Nope. 
I was blistered and bleeding and smelly and swollen and limping and lumbering clumsily close to cutoffs from dusk to dawn, but finally finishing feverish and flushed, grateful for the goal, grateful for the getting and mesmerized by memories made from midnight to morning astride muck and mountain. This guy is into alliteration. Chris, well done. Congratulations. You got it done. You crushed it. And turning our attention to the Southwest, of course, Havelina went down. This is a dream race for so many people. And so many have not only run it once, but run it multiple times. And Lisa Lee of Maricopa, Arizona is no exception. Having six attempts at the Havelina 100K, this was her fourth finish and she crushed DFL. <laughs> About her race, Lisa says, I love Havelina. My personal favorite mantras are, don't let what you can't do stop you from doing what you can. And nobody's coming to save you. Get up, be your own damn hero. Lisa, you are a hero to the back of the pack community and congrats on your finish. And in the big dance, the Havelina 100, Charlene Stevens of Sioux Falls, South Dakota crushed third on the glorious DFL podium. Charlene has at least eight 100-mile finishes under her belt, and about her race, she says, when it comes to ultras, the longer the race, the further back I am. Originally, I wanted Havelina to be my 100-mile PR, but... At this time last year, everything was nosediving. I was unhappy and I found it hard to have the energy or time to do the things I wanted to do. My long runs had only consisted of 8 to 12 miles. So going into this race, I knew I had to rely on my experience and mental toughness. I was pretty consistent each loop and my biggest issue was a blister that popped on my big toe upon finishing loop 3. After taking care of that, I just had to focus on keeping myself motivated to push forward ahead of cutoff. I had been dealing with an uncontrollable bladder for the last two loops, so I made it known to the other back-of-the-pack runners that I'm not gunning for DFL, but I need to stop in the porta potty before the finish line because I'm not peeing myself down the finisher chute. <laughs> I carried that plan out and I swam to the finish line. I say swam because I was dressed as a seahorse for the entire duration of Havelina 100. Oh my gosh, Charlene, that is hilarious and awesome. Congrats on this finish. And last but certainly not least, Caitlin Stoddard Carter of Memphis, Tennessee crushed DFL at the Havelina 100 this year. This was her first 100 mile race. And about her race, Caitlin says, despite my best intentions, I developed tendonitis in early March. So my goal for Havelina became simply to finish and not have any long-term damage or side effects. Another big challenge for me is I have several life-threatening allergies. I've been to the ER minutes from death many times, and although it sounds kind of dark, I think having almost experienced death so many times makes it easier to push through when running ultras. You learn so much about yourself in those extreme situations, and there's something so human about the emotional roller coaster you experience while running these distances. I think that's part of why I love it so much. It makes me feel very much alive. It was a great 
first 100 mile race experience. At the end of the day, I accomplished my goal, learned from the experience and mostly enjoyed it. Well, Caitlin, you are amazing. Congratulations, you did it. You finished your first 100. You are amongst a select few badasses in this world. And we salute you and all of the other back of the Packers who are out there crushing it. Well done. We'll be right back. This week's episode of Chasing Cutoffs is brought to you by Slow Your Roll. The product designers at Slow Your Roll understand the unique challenges of back of the pack runners and that you may need to go number one or number two multiple times out on the course. So they have designed a TP subscription service just for you. When you subscribe, you will receive a starter pack with their aircraft grade aluminum spindle that's small enough to fit in your pack and ultra light. You'll also receive three rolls of their quilted biodegradable TP that discreetly fit right on that spindle and will keep you clean and moving all through the race. So don't be caught unprepared. Let the good times roll and go over to slowyourroll.com and enter promo code CHASINGCUTOFFS for 15% off your starter pack. That's slowyourroll.com, promo code CHASINGCUTOFFS. And now, back to the show. My next guest has so much amazing wisdom to share about the mental game and about trying to tackle a singular goal time after time. He is a soldier in the British Royal Air Force, and he is with us today, coming to us all the way from the UK, Ben Lonsdale. Ben, welcome to Chasing Cutoffs. Thanks, Ben. Lovely to be here. Yeah, I'm stoked to have you on because I think you're going to have a few interesting stats that none of my guests have had before, including a, a DNF or two at UTMB, which we will get to. And I, there's a lot that I want to unpack in your back of the pack racing history. But before we do, I would love to jump into the Wayback Machine because I am endlessly fascinated by people's origin stories. So if you will, tell me about your family. Where did you grow up? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in the north of England, in North Yorkshire. So quite a, a big county, but a rural one. So low population density in the countryside in one of our national parks, the Yorkshire Dales National Park. You actually grew up in the national park? Yes. I, I think our national parks maybe work a, a little bit different than than yours do over in the States. So it's kind of a, a protected area, a natural beauty where mm. people can live and work and work in the landscape is, is part of it. Um, but with additional constraints, like planning constraints, so you can't just build a high rise in the middle of it. Gotcha. So it's a limestone area, lots of lots of hills, lots of caves. If you're into potholing, and and lots of they probably don't class as mountains, but good sized hills. Nice. So I grew up in an outdoor family. My my parents were were both mountain leaders, so I was lucky to be exposed to a lot of kind of outdoor activity at a young age. Well, there's a couple of things I need to to unpack here. So potholing is that like spelunking, like caving? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, exactly that. Right on. And when you say that your parents were mountain leaders, what does that mean? Uh, so they they qualified to lead people in the outdoors effectively. Oh, okay. So they're both oh. retired now. My mum was a teacher. Um, my dad worked for the national park as oh, a cool. 
uh, can arrange an area, an area manager. Wow, you grew up in an idyllic outdoor environment. That was, it was nice. I was I was very lucky, to be fair. Or I say our national parks are a bit different, so no bear spray or anything. Just the the worst we get is a, a kind of border collie that's off his lead or something. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so I, I grew up in a, a lovely part of the world. And if if you weren't into to team sports, but you were into being physically active, then uh, then running was a, an obvious way to go. So I ran a little bit of cross country at school, and again, it's not the same on the same scale that you hear right. when you hear people on podcasts talking about. Oh, I ran cross country. That means you're like one of the fastest runners in the country. Sure. Not not me, <laughs> um, but I was I was okay. I was kind of light on my feet, and I growing up in the countryside took up fell running in my probably mid mid to late about 16 very cool uh, so fell running is a range of distances but the the kind that i favored was the kind where you go out of the the field at the start and the aim is to get around the the cairn at the top of the, the top of the hill and then back down as quickly as you can whichever way you can so i i favored the one up one down but they they include anything up to 30 plus miles of of running over the the open fells in the Yorkshire dales the lake district the Peak District um, and up in Scotland as well. Yeah, it's fascinating because there's a that whole orienteering component, right? There's no defined trail per se, so you're just kind of finding your way up and down best you can. Um, so, so it depends on the event. Fell races traditionally were were flagged at least going up, and then on the way down, quite often you'd have a couple of gateways that you had to go through, or walls that were padded so that you would, didn't knock them over. And then conversely, we have orienteering where full on you have a map and compass and it's entirely up to you to, to navigate. Yeah, that's really so, cool. So, no, it was good fun. Yeah, so I, I matured, fell running, really enjoyed it. When did you start doing that? Like, how old were you when you did your first fell race? Um, so we have country shows and village shows. So every village and town in our area had a, a fate, I suppose. So competitions for who can bake the best cake take the best photograph, grow the best carrot. Yeah, yeah, like a county fair is what we would call that over here. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. on, a, on a, a small scale. So a lot of those had fell races associated with them. Oh, it's so cool. And it, it goes back hundreds of years, the sport, um, to when the local landowners used to have their guides kind of race up the hill to to see who could get to the top and back quickest and they used to bet on them and it, it's turned into quite a popular sport since then. yeah. So in your very first one, you were how old? Um, I probably would have done one of the local ones as a uh, as an under ten, so I wasn't a young child. Oh my um, but but then didn't really get into it properly until I was at high school. So I was probably fifteen or sixteen. That is really really cool. So siblings? Uh, yes, I have a younger sister. She took a gap year before university in two thousand and two. Uh, to go skiing and then um, hasn't been back. Ah. So she, um, <laughs> yeah, she skied for a good while. She was a, a half-pipe skier. Yeah, she skied at quite a high level. She went to the Olympics in 2014. Wow. And then retired. Um, for Team GB? Yes. Yeah. Wow, um, that's so cool. And then went on to be a, a ski instructor for a little while. And now she's working back in the UK as a mountain leader. So she's having a great time. So she's following in your parents' footsteps. Yeah, so she's but she's she gets to do it full time instead of just for fun. So she's yeah. kind of guiding people around the Yorkshire Dales and the Lake District and and North Wales. Oh, that is so cool, man! She has fun. I'm very jealous of your your upbringing. It sounds quite idyllic and amazing and cool. Yes, I do. I feel very lucky to have had the upbringing I've had. I've definitely uh, definitely benefited from it. 
So I'm relatively familiar with the whole primary, secondary school scenario over there. So you mentioned that you didn't really get into fell running properly until you were in secondary school in like yes. 16 years old or so. Yeah. So when you're kind of growing up in this national park and you're going to go to the city, like where did you go? So even though it's a different county, we're not far from kind of Leeds and Lancaster and mm. Greater Manchester. So okay. one of the reasons why I didn't start fell running until a bit later is because uh, we did so much skiing as as children on the, the dry ski slope. Dry ski slope? I've yeah. never heard that term before. Because apart from Scotland, we don't have any outdoor skiing uh, on snow in England. We don't have the weather for it or the hills. Sure. So now we have snow domes, so the kind of indoor skiing. Right. But prior to that, and they still exist, we have um, artificial slopes. And you can use proper skis on this? Yes. Yeah. Wow. You burn them up a little bit much. They have <laughs> they have like a water system. Um, but obviously, because of the soft nature of the ski base, you can melt your skis a bit if you if you don't look after them. But. Right, the friction. Yeah, yeah, yeah that sounds pretty weird. <laughs> yeah. So, from a sporting perspective, throughout your school years, big time skiing indoors, which is pretty radical, and then you picked up fell running in secondary school, fifteen, sixteen years old. So. Did you fall in love with running at that point? Was that something where you thought, gosh, I just love doing this? Or was it just kind of a thing to do at the fair? So I, I think I probably did start to fall in love with fell running. Mm. I mean, our schools were small. We had to go at every sport. So we played everything, even if we weren't good at it. Um, running was probably, apart from skiing, was my least worst one. So I, I did run all the way through. But once I got into fell running and found that I was kind of good at it, I say good, it felt good running up the hill, working hard, and then just throwing yourself back down it. It's along similar lines to kind of Mount Marathon sometimes, where yeah, right. particularly up in the Lake District where the scree slopes and you're just throwing yourself down. And quite often the first person to the top won't be the winner. Right, because they might eat it on the way down, right? Yeah, <laughs> or, or someone will descend past them. I mean, at one of the Highland Games in Scotland, I once overtook three people when I was falling um, completely <laughs> completely by accident. I just couldn't slow myself down. And then I hit a gorse bush and that kind of did the job for me. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. So yeah, I, I mean, I grew to love it very quickly. You get to be outside, whatever the weather is. You get to test yourself, certainly at the time. This was before we had to carry even the basic mandatory kit. Obviously, now you have at least a waterproof and a whistle. But it was you, your shorts and vest, and your your shoes. And you just worked as hard as you could. And some days you did well, and other days your friends beat you. But it was just really, I don't know, it sounds a bit evangelical to say it was quite quite a pure form of the sport, but it was. It was just good. I'm glad you mentioned that because I think a lot of folks in the U.S. who might start out road running, right, doing marathon and so on, and then they discover trail running and it's like this wide-eyed discovery much later in life. And it's like there's this whole world here and I had no idea that people did this. What I think is really interesting about your experience is you encounter this at, for lack of a better term, the county fair. And... Like you said, it's been going on for 100 years. This is nothing new. I'm just going to jump into something that everyone understands, everyone does, everyone knows what it is, and I'm going to have a go. I think that's really interesting because there was no point at which you were like discovering the secret club. This was a well-known thing, and you just decided to partake. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's largely down to my good fortune to grow up where I did. Yeah, I was very lucky to to grow up in the countryside where we had access to it, and you were exposed to it very early on. 
Yeah. There's a, a book came out quite a few years ago now called Feet in the Clouds by a guy called Richard Asquith. And he was a, a Londoner who discovered fell running and kind of came came to it late in life. Mm. And it told his story, but told the history of fell running as well. It's very worth a, a read. Oh, nice. L- listeners at home need to check that book out. I will. Yeah, it's well worth it. It's in your local bookshop, but on Amazon, on Kindle, fairly cheap at the minute. So, Did you go to university yourself? Yeah, so I did um, my GCSEs and my A-levels, so 16 and 18, and then went to I went to university in North Wales, the University of Wales in Bangor. The University of Wales, and what did you study? Uh, so I studied sports science and French. Nice, sports science. Man, this is just like a through line. You're just continuing this from birth through university. So what did you learn in this sports science? So for the first couple of years, I learned that I wasn't a very good student. Um, I was away from home. I was doing lots of new sports, trampolining and playing hockey and badminton. And, but I was also enjoying the social aspects. So academically, I definitely started to decline at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, in Bangor is on the coast in North Wales with the island of Anglesey, just across the the Menai Strait. It's right next to Snowdonia, uh, the Snowdonia National Park. Mm -hmm. So mountainous region of Wales, beautiful place to be quite cold and quite wet. So I did a four-year bachelor's degree, the third year being overseas. So I got to live in France for a couple of terms, working as a language assistant, which was which was great fun. Why French? Um, because I wanted to be a ski instructor. In, and obviously the closest place to us to do that is, is the French Alps. Okay, so this is the through line of the passion from skiing. So you want to be a ski instructor, so you're going to get your sports science degree. So did that ultimately lead you to this dream? Did you accomplish this goal? Not really, no. Um, so <laughs> I, <laughs> um, Which is a very common story. <laughs> yes. Um, so I did my first two years at university, learned a lot about what I thought life was, kind of away from home for the first time. And then my, my year abroad, working as a language assistant, kind of exposed me to a whole different culture. You know, obviously, France, very large country. Where, where were you? Uh, so I was in, uh, in the Auvergne, so in the kind of central southern part of France. Not in the mountains, not in the Alps. Uh, so it, what, it was quite similar to home, actually. So I'd asked to be in the Alps for obvious reasons, um, didn't get it, but then ended up in the, in the Auvergne, which is where Volvic mineral water comes from. So there's a couple of old kind of volcanoes there hmm. and a couple of small ski resorts. So I was very lucky to hmm. be half an hour away from just a small ski station. Yeah, had a, had a great time out there, grew up a bit having been quite kind of immature prior to that, although my wife would argue that nothing's changed. Um, <laughs> and then came back, did my final year at university, and then I went out to back out to the French Alps to, to live for a couple of winters, working as a barman and just enjoying skiing, snowboarding, telemarking every day whenever I could. So you're a barman. Are, what village are you in at that point? Uh, so I was in Val d'Isère which is part of the Espace Kili, so just over the mountain from Teens. Mm. Again, lovely part of the lovely part of the country. Mm-hmm. Lots of Brits there, uh, lots of Scandinavians, Swedish, Danish, Norwegian visitors, as well as the, the French visitors. So I was doing a, a, lot of, a lot of skiing. As an American, obviously, from a uh, French Alps village perspective, obviously most of us know Chamonix very well from a million YouTube videos and, and yeah. all of the hype around UTMB. How does this uh, village that you were in compare so Val d'Isère is a little bit higher than Chamonix, mm. slightly different area, so a couple of hours away. In terms of skiing, it's a lot more coherent. So Chamonix, 
which is one of my favorite places in the world for skiing it's quite disjointed you have to travel by road in between each of the kind of base lift stations whereas Val d'Isere is more of a purpose-built ski resort Chamonix mm. kind of evolved in in sections because of the nature of the valley and the steep sides um mm. difficult to link them up so a little bit more purpose-built um fantastic skiing but if I was going to live somewhere all year round I'd pick Chamonix ah uh, yes okay cool but you don't live there no. <laughs> and you did not wind up being a ski instructor or or doing those things. So tell me how how did this career situation unfold for you and where did you wind up? What did you wind up doing? Uh so my my roommate out in Val d'Isere came back for a week or so to try and get selected to join the Royal Air Force as a pilot. He'd always wanted to be a pilot. He was ultimately unsuccessful in joining the Air Force, but was able to join the British Army also as a pilot for the Army Air Corps. And that just made me start thinking about doing something that was more challenging than pulling pints and skiing every day, as, as fun as that was, for <laughs> 60 pounds a week. So I, I started having a look at joining the armed forces in some form. Um, and I happened across the job of physical education officer, which needed my, my sports science degree to be able to do it or something similar. Kind of wandered into the careers office with my hair down to my shoulders and in my board shorts and I think they must have looked at me a bit funny. So <laughs> I um, obviously by the time I went back next time, I'd had a haircut. But yeah, I I kind of followed followed that route. That is so interesting to me because is there any military service in your background or your family's background? Um, not in the not in the immediate term. So my grandfather was in the Royal Artillery during the, the Second World War, but apart from that, nothing nothing recent no. Mm-hmm. and so you're kind of living the life and the dream but it sounds like there was a level of dissatisfaction with where you had wound up or what you were doing did you feel like the the dream career for one reason or another was not going to work out um to be honest i'm not really sure i thought about it so the the barman thing was always going to be a temporary it was sure. i hadn't had a gap year before university which is a traditional thing uh in the uk for some depending on the your outlook in life obviously not everyone chooses to go to university mm-hmm. other jobs and routes through life are available um before i dig myself a deeper hole <laughs> so i joined the royal air force thinking that they had a ski team that they do adventurous training as, as a means of developing their, their personnel Obviously, it's really good to put people outside of their comfort zone in a safer environment before you then put them into a war zone where they're immediately out of their comfort zone and might mm-hmm. make kind of fatal mistakes fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. So my my plan had been to join the Air Force for just a few years. So I joined for six years and do some more skiing, maybe be a ski instructor and then come out, go back to the Alps. And then after the first year or two, I realized that I really liked it. Mm. I have sufficient leave to be able to go skiing and go and do the things I like doing, but I get to have a really interesting job as well. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I'm curious about as you are, you know, moving into this new phase of life, big, big change, something you probably hadn't considered prior to having this roommate, and you discover that you really like it and you stick around. There's still obviously this through line of, like you said, you have ample leaves so you can do your skiing, etc. When does running come back into the picture? So I kind of got into triathlon a little bit mm. at the same time. I stayed fit-ish for probably my first couple of years. I say fit, kind of fit by service standards, so fairly fit. Certainly for running, I was awful at press-ups and sit-ups. Anything to do with upper body weight, I just <laughs> failed. Uh, not failed, failed, but 
didn't wasn't good at sure and i focused on my strengths which was staying light and running fast and then my job changed a little bit i started spending a bit more time on your side of the atlantic eating from fast food joints and my diet went downhill rapidly <laughs> on behalf of the uh, american people i'd like to apologize to you for our terrible fast food situation over here <laughs> not at all it's my fault for getting stuck into it and we're we're very alike as countries in a lot of ways so i absolutely don't blame you or yours for it <laughs> i love visiting the states I love coming to work over there when we've had a chance to, to do that. We're always made very welcome. And it's my own lack of willpower, which is a running theme throughout my time as an ultra runner, that um, particularly when it comes to eating healthily, that is to blame, not, uh, not anything over there. So yeah, I suppose I kept running for fun. I ran as part of triathlon, a game for fun. And I steadily, I suppose, gained weight. And it's about 2013, I think that I kind of said, right, I need to try and do something about this. And I wasn't huge. I was probably no heavier then than I am now. And I've gone up a lot and back down in between, which showed how good ultra running is to help you lose weight. Um, (laughs) Yeah, don't advise ultra running as a weight loss method. (laughs) And yeah, so about 2013, I think, I decided, right, I'm going to try entering a, a longer run. It's interesting that you mention 2013. Because the very first race result that comes up for you on ITRA is in 2013. Okay. But what's a bit mind-blowing to me is that this is in April. It's called the Felsman. Yeah. But it's 100K. That was your first race? Yeah. So I've done a couple of, um, when I say mountain marathons, so the UK has done mountain marathons going back 50 plus years but that's mm. with your tent with all your kit in pairs it's a long distance orienteering event over two days basically where you're self-sufficient for two days wow so i'd done a couple of those so i i'd run kind of 30 miles one day and 20 miles the next previously um carrying a pack so i i felt i knew that i'd be able to at least have a good go at it but i didn't really i don't know as a as a child i was known for climbing up big rocks without really thinking about how I get back down and then getting stuck and having to call for help, uh, get my mum to come and get me. And she still reminds me about that now. Oh my gosh, a, that's funny. 40 year old. So I've often kind of, without really thinking about it, just gone, oh, that'll be fine. Um, and still do, I suppose. I still enter things knowing that I might not be fit enough. Sure. But that's half the fun, you know, yeah. is if you knew you could do it, then unless you're trying to win it, kind of what's the point? Right. Uh, I don't know. That's probably not quite fair. But So where is this race, this Felsman race? So the Felsman is at the halfway point of it, of my first long race, when I was thinking, I feel awful, my feet are going to fall off, everything's chafed. It would have been shorter to walk back to my parents' house than it was to get to the finish. <laughs> um, so it's up in the Yorkshire Dales. It's probably, uh, I'll have to check, but it's been going at least 60 years, I think. Wow. It started as a long distance walk in the UK. There's the Long Distance Walk Association, which coordinates long distance walks. It's run by the Scouts, which means it's still very good value for money to enter. The aid stations are fantastic because it's the same volunteers that come back every year. Oh, that's awesome. Half of them are in the same fancy dress. They've got a different food at every aid station. At one end, you've got some of the fastest runners in the UK winning. And at the back end, you've got people in, in hiking boots 
who are setting out knowing they're going to walk it end to end. And you know what, the first time I did it, a lot of them overtook me towards the back end (laughs) and I I thought I was reasonably fit. Well, that does bring us to a a consistent theme and why you're on this show today. And that is because you have pretty much been a very solid back of the pack runner, which it sounds like has not deterred you. You didn't wind up at the back of the pack and think, well, obviously this isn't for me. You decided to keep going. You know, you did three races in 2013, so you got really serious about this concept. Do you feel like the the through line there or the driver behind jumping then into a 71K solo race and then doing this uh, 66K Ultra Brecken round in December that year, do you feel like all of that was just about, I just want to get fit, or were you falling in love with the sport? So when I was eight, my sister was six, we walked with my mum, the, the Tour de Mont Blanc. So before the race existed, it took us 10 or 11 days, started in Chamonix and walked all the way around. And then the race appeared. So when I first looked at the Felsman, which I knew about because I'd been in the scouts and some of my friends had supported it and some of the people from my running club back as a teenager had run it. There was this little thing on it that said UTMB points or something like that. So I just had a little look. I was like, oh, UTMB. If I did that as an eight-year-old, surely I can do it as an adult. Um, (laughs) Now, how many days did it take you as an eight-year-old? Ten, I think. (laughs) Keeping in mind, for me, listening to that, I'm going, okay, the idyllic childhood just got even better. I mean, how epic is that, that you and your sister and your mom <laughs> got to do that? That is incredible. What an amazing memory. Yes. Yeah, just our upbringing. Very lucky to be exposed to it yeah. uh, at that age. So as you're running these races, then you're seeing this UTMB thing pop up. That early on in 2013, did you get the idea that I want to pursue this? I want to try and qualify? So as soon as I'd entered the Felsman and finished it, and it was my first real exposure to sleep monsters on the Felsman. Hmm. So I kind of finished and it wasn't straight away, but maybe three or four days later, as we all do, having thought for three days, that was the worst thing in the world. I'm never doing it again. (laughs) You then start to think, oh, maybe it wasn't that bad. And maybe I imagined how awful it felt. And that's when I started thinking, you know what, UTMB could could be a thing. What other events can I enter that, that will get me the points, mm-hmm. which is when I started looking at the other races. Um, and I honestly don't think I've got any faster in the intervening nine <laughs> years. Um, I've got better at suffering, but... <laughs> well, the uh, the results would agree with you, yeah, but I'm sure there's some things that you've gotten better at. Yeah. Before we talk a little bit more about your racing career, and I do want to talk about it, I think UTMB is a very interesting through line because it's a dream race for so many people in the U.S. and people around the globe, of course. But I'm curious, throughout your military career, are there any sort of lessons or you know developmental things mentally, emotionally, that you have sort of derived from that that you feel has influenced how you race? So, yes and no. I think it goes both ways, really, as well. So, also, I'm, I'm in the Air Force. We're a, a technical force, whereas the, the infantry elements of all three services are kind of soldiers. Their fitness is absolutely their, their reason for being. Um, I've spent much of my career working in, in technical areas. So there hasn't been a huge amount of transfer in terms of the, the resilience that mm-hmm. you might expect mm-hmm. from someone who is a, a Royal Marine or 
or a member of the parachute regiment who absolutely that will transfer into into running. I think I've learned a lot about preparedness from my time in the service, about thinking things through, planning, preparing for for an event. So mm-hmm. understanding the route, understanding what equipment I'm likely to need, um, making sure that equipment fits and works because that's absolutely critical to any of the armed, armed forces mm-hmm. that that they've planned properly. Um, they have the right equipment and if they haven't got the right equipment they understand how they're going to get it or how they'll manage without it assessing risk absolutely is something that i've got better at through my day job Mm -hmm. and uh, understanding the implications of risk to me as an individual but also to those around me as well as a teenager i'd quite happily have gone in just a pair of shorts and a vest and done anything without thinking about it and my dad would say what happens if you get injured i'm not going to get injured whereas (laughs) now i absolutely understand that not only can I get injured, I'm potentially more prone to injury than many being, being heavy and slow. Um, <laughs> I don't wrong. If I do stop, I'm better insulated than many as well. So that helps. But, so, so yeah, um, preparedness and, and assessing risk mm-hmm. uh, that's come, come to the fore more than once because I don't find it particularly inspiring to, to run on the road anymore. Mm-hmm. I do when I, when I need to, the races that I enter tend to be in beautiful places or adventurous, exciting places but those are the places that come with more risk. Mm-hmm. UK, European events tend to have a greater requirement for mandatory kit, which I'm very happy with. I'd always rather carry a bit more kit, not being at the front of the pack. Those extra few grams for a, a jacket that I know I'm going to be wearing for 20 hours in the rain, rather than the lightest weight one I can find, which is going to soak me through after two hours. Right. I think it's an interesting point because there's just this sort of idea in the ether amongst us ultra runners that when they go to the uk it's like why do i have to carry waterproof pants like i've never carried this stuff before yeah um but you know i think you're absolutely right in terms of that preparedness uh, preparing for the worst case scenario is absolutely critical yes and a part of that i think certainly for me came with age mm. and it came with with injury as well so what was your first attempt at utmb what year was that that was 2015. So I'd done some random distances that are set routes over mountains and mm-hmm. things like that, where mm-hmm. the aim is get over these three mountains rather than um, go this far. And then I entered the South Downs Way 100 miler. So it's a Centurion running event. They do very good events. They're very well planned and prepared, very well catered for. But I got to about 65 miles and I just gave up. I just, I was in the cutoffs. I was doing okay i was tired i hadn't stopped to sleep i hadn't learned how to stop and sleep at that point and i just gave up and i i really disliked myself for a long time after that hmm. and and that was in the summer i think before utmb at the end of the summer so 2015 you attempt this centurion south downs 100 miler you pull out yep. early yeah and you're feeling like garbage about yourself <laughs> Yeah. Was that your first sort of, you know, pulling the plug by yourself DNF scenario? Yeah, it was. How did you get around that? How did you get back on the start line? Why did you decide you wanted to keep going? Um, I think I just hated how it made me feel so much that because uh, it, it kind of hung over me for a, a good while. But I was also deployed just after that UTMB. Mm. So I knew I was going to start UTMB. Mm-hmm. I had an entry. Obviously, I know how hard it is to get into the race, so I was going to start. So 2015, UTMB, yeah. you are standing on the start line. You know you're going to be deploying 
shortly after. Yes. And as I say, I'm, I'm not an infantier. This is not a deployment for uh, 12 months to a very, very austere location um, where we're getting uh, mortared and rocketed and shot at every day. So I don't want to put across a false, a false impression. So working on a, a French managed kind of air base out in Africa. So I had that in mind, but not that much in mind at this stage. I kind of wanted to finish UTMB and I hadn't really given much thought to my mindset to be honest. And it's only with more experience that I've started to pay a lot more attention to that as a, as the biggest factor mm. in, in finishing an ultra. Mm. You can be as physically prepared as you want. If you're not mentally prepared, then it's going to go badly. And the opposite is true as well. If as most of us probably prove every time we finish a race that you don't have to be the most physically prepared, if you have the right mindset, then I'm not going to say anything is possible because that's manifestly not true, but but you can make things that shouldn't be possible possible by just having the grit, the resolve that you're going to do this and, and then you make it happen. Mm-hmm. So how did your 2015 UTMB race unfold? So it's a fast start. The start gun goes, the countdown happens and everyone gets really excited. And then as with big road races, the front of the pack sets off and everyone else just stands there for a little bit until there's space for them to actually run anywhere. Um, and then he set off sprinting out through Chamonix. I was bombing down through Chamonix crowds everywhere and getting really excited. And it's the first time I'd ever experienced anything like it. Cause I'd never done any big marathons or anything. And uh, you just get carried along and then you go through Les Uches and you hit the hill and you go, bloody hell, I wish I hadn't set off that fast. <laughs> Cause you're on the road for quite a while, right? Yeah. You're on, you're on the road through the town, then a track, um, and then back on the road and then suddenly you're on single track mm going going up the first climb and it's still like six or seven in the evening it's still warm um and suddenly you're thinking well this is going to be hard work why did i run out so fast yeah but you can't help it because you're kind of in with everyone and everyone's going and unless you have the the common sense to and the confidence i suppose to start at the back as in to go to the back of the pack and just run your own pace the cutoff in lazouche is not generous Mm. so you have to get there fairly quickly Mm -hmm. then after that i was just had my eye on the cutoffs the the whole way going up there's like a it's about a 20 mile climb i think from Saint-Gervais through Lake Consumine up to the the Col de Bonhomme and you can just see it's so impressive but so intimidating as well just this line of head torches going all the way up the hill yeah. um and on one hand you're going that looks really cool on the other hand you go, oh, I've got a really long way to go yet yeah and I came down into into Le Chapier and I was still feeling okay but then I still hadn't at this stage learned to manage my sleep because it was only the second long run I'd done and I quit on the first one so I was coming up the hill out of Le Chapier towards Italy and what I should have done at that point was lie down sleep for 10 minutes and and set off again Mm. and instead all I did was just tail off well it's still relatively quote-unquote early in the race so it's interesting that you now in hindsight you're like yeah I know that I would have been better off to take a 10-minute nap, even though it was early in the race. That would have benefited me. It's early in the race, but it's not early in the day. Mm. It's a five or a six o'clock start in the evening mm-hmm. when you've already been up all day. Mm-hmm. And unless you've adjusted your body clock, you wake up that morning, it's race day, and you're really excited. And you're getting all your kit ready, and then the whole town's buzzing, and you're looking at all the cool stuff in the shops that, well, should I have bought that? Buying your little water on tattoo thing with a profile for your arm and then you're like oh I've still got five hours before I start yet what I'm gonna do I'll have an ice cream for a bit and and there's no way you can sleep <laughs> no no so it basically as if physically you're not that tired yes you've done some big hills but for me it's rarely been the physical 
fatigue that's that's got me it's nearly always been the mental fatigue mm-hmm. and that was one of the biggest lessons I learned from from those two races was sleep when you can and and sort out your mental game so you did not sleep at that checkpoint you just powered through so I, I went through they do have some beds there but I'm, I'm a big fan of the do you call it a trail nap sure yep <laughs> so the, the problem is if there's too many people around they'll wake you up to check you're not dead um which is very good of them um curl up set your alarm for 10 minutes normally wake up after eight minutes mm. six or eight minutes is the optimal just to get you going it'll get you another hour or two up the up the trail so going up that hill quite a long hill up to i think it's called la Seine into over into italy the sun's coming up at that point so you kind of as you get to the coal if you're at the back of the pack there'll be a lot of people familiar with that site of seeing italy with the sun just coming up and you've got that half hour sweet spot between oh, it's not dark anymore and that does wonders for your morale uh, between the point at which it gets really, really hot and you're wishing it was dark again. Mm. So yeah, uh, that was the point at which I, I lost it going up that long mm. climb, just stopping and kind of half resting on my poles instead of having a proper sleep and then being able to mentally force my legs to keep going up the hill. Um, so I then came down the other side and having knowingly given up at, at South Downs 100, I decided I wasn't going to give up this time, but I cheated. So instead of stopping i slowed down so that i didn't make the cutoff mm. and that it's a i know that in my own head there's no difference but in terms of what i was worried about other people were think we're going to think about me about me giving mm. up again because i knew i didn't want to carry on even though this is something that i was i'd worked for fairly hard for for a couple of years um i just slowed down until i knew that i was, wasn't going to make the cutoff down at like combal got there i don't know i can't remember how late i was but not a lot late but late enough that if the marshals were generous, they weren't going to let me through. This is some pretty brutal honesty on reflection, right? It's like, what I'm hearing you say is, I gave up in both cases, but this is the second time I was trying to save face a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. Well, cat's out of the bag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, there's, uh, I mean, in this sport, if you can't be honest with yourself about stuff like that, then... Super important, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. No, of course. It feels to me at least, and obviously I can only speak to what happens inside my own head, it's difficult to move past Mm -hmm. something like that if you're not honest with yourself. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't wrong, people lie to themselves about all kinds of stuff, big and small. I do it, I'm sure sure most of us do. Uh, But something like that where it had knocked me so so much. I don't wrong, I wasn't sufficiently physically prepared for for either race. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I kind of stopped at Combao got the bus back through the tunnel from Cormier to, to Chamonix and then went home, got ready to, to go out to Africa, had a really good bunch of people to work with out there, a really interesting job. And I was fitter when I came back. I came back straight into the South Downs 50 and took an, an hour or so off my previous year, I think. Yeah. So you jump back into the South Downs 50. You actually finish closer to the middle of the pack in this 2016 50 miler i'm not sure why you thought it was a good idea to <laughs> less than two months later to jump into the 100 miler <laughs> at the same race but you finished that thing yeah that was that was tough but it's like homework or housework if you've got an hour to do it it'll take you an hour if you've got two hours it'll take you two hours i don't know oh, if all of yeah. are the same with cutoffs but mm. i set off on the south downs 100 again and i was i was much happier i'd kind of learned i think to be a bit more honest with myself Mm. got to grips with the fact that i'd 
that I'd given up and I'd let myself down on on the previous year. I had a bit more confidence coming off the back of that 50 miler as well. And um, I was a bit fitter, but I also had done a couple of practice runs where I'd tried sleeping. I got better at forcing myself to nap. Mm. And that year, that's what I did. Just got my head down for a couple of naps and yeah, happy days. It got me through. The cutoff was 30 hours and I was 29. 46. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And this was your first appearance. On the glorious DFL podium, you finished 201 out of 203. Congratulations. (laughs) That's amazing. Thank you. I appreciate it. (laughs) It Took me two years of hard work to get there. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, that's actually true. Because of that DNF, you know, monster kind of uh, haunting you, right? There's this thing in the back of your mind all the time about, can I really get this done? And you got it done. That is a huge, huge accomplishment. And you round out 2016 with just a little icing on the cake. Going back to UTMB, running the CCC, for those that aren't aware, this is the 100K race there. Yeah. And you did it. I did. You finished. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was awesome. So the CCC starts in Cormier over in Italy and then broadly follows the UTMB route back to, to Chamonix. It was tough. Put some leave in, been out to do some reccees. So I'd, I was familiar with the route. The first 10K was just epic. They split the start into three waves, 15 minutes apart, just because it all goes to the single track very quickly. Um, big climb, it's just a dust, kind of a dust conga. But then once I got going, started to feel a lot happier about it. Mm-hmm. But there's some tough climbs in the back end of those races. Just before you come back into France, the last climb out of Switzerland is epically tough. And then had a few sleeps. They helped a lot and and got through it. That's amazing. I love capping off 2016, how this finished for you, because it obviously translated into a lot of future success. 2017, you have another great year. You don't take on 100K or more, but you did three solid races 2018, you actually ran Comarier, uh, Grand Tour Comarier, which is really cool. Yeah. Finishing again, kind of more toward the mid pack in that race in 2018. You you got that 103K done in, in 28 hours, but you were 157 out of 306 runners. So that's pretty cool. It's something to be proud of. Yeah, I was happy with that. I'm not sure that there were that many that finished, but um, uh, I see. Yeah. I, I think that was the, the starters. Yeah. And I don't want to pour salt on the wound here, but I want to fast forward to 2019 because I know that this is a meaningful year (laughs) in your career. When you went out again, South Downs, 50 miler, got it done. You went out to a unique one, a 50K. You did the Wendover Woods night in July. Yeah. All in preparation to get back on the start line for your second attempt at the big dance. Yeah. UTMV 2019. This is your second chance. Tell me how that race unfolded. Um, so I felt I felt better prepared for this one. I knew what was coming. I'd done all of the route at various times. I've been out in the summer for 10 days backpacking. It wasn't quite fast packing, slow packing the route. I decided I'd try and get nearer to the front of the start pen because even though that would make me work harder down that first bit even though I'd slow down and get tired at the same places I'd be further up in the pack when I did mm. so I was feeling good through Les Uches, good through Saint-Gervais and Contamine and I was up on where I needed to be and then going up that long climb I started to get some pain in my hip and it was kind of gradually shooting down to down the outside of my leg into my knee 
So on that big climb towards Col de Bonhomme, I kept having to stop and stretch off. And it was taking about kind of 20 seconds of stretching for about five minutes of mm. it not hurting. So I, I kind of realized it was going to be a bit of a tough night. Yeah. I carried on. I thought at least on a downhill, it'll be fine. And then the downhill, it was still hurting. <laughs> um, so as a sports scientist, are we talking IT band? Is that what was troubling you? Um, a little bit, mm. but in my kind of hip flexors as well. So you make it down the other side of the hill, but it's still hurting. Yeah. So I, I stopped and tried to have a sleep in Le Chapeau because they've got beds there. I thought, right, I'll get my head down on a proper bed. Gave myself 20 minutes. I'll get someone to wake me up. And I didn't really sleep there. Um, set off and got up the hill. And my least favorite bit of the course, and they, they added this in a few years ago, is just after you get into Italy, you start dropping down towards Lac Combal and the Elisabetta Refuge. But then they make you go back up. It's like scree, but big bits of scree, the mm. kind that if it falls on you, it's going to do some damage. Yeah. And I really dislike that bit, but I thought, right, I've got to get through it. So I got through that bit, got through Combal, and I was still feeling able to push myself. But every time I was going up or downhill, if it wasn't flat, it was hurting my, mm. my hip and my knee. Mm-hmm. Lay down in the stream for a bit to cool down, carried on, absolutely smashed myself down into Cormayeur. Down, there's a really steep descent into Cormayeur, really pushed myself down there to try and get in before the cutoff. First time ever to Cormier, right, in this race. Yes. You didn't make it that far the first time. No. So this is a milestone in and of itself. Yeah, so I got further. So I'm kind of happy, but obviously only happy really with a finish. And then this is probably about one in one or two in the afternoon going up the hill. It just got hot and I started struggling. So every, every zigzag, I was kind of stopping to recover. But I think it was my head as much as anything. And I needed to sleep really. Mm. instead what I should have done was get my head down for 10 minutes and then and then push on I carried on up the hill and I could see my time was kind of going and going and um pushed on through stopped for a sleep once I got to the flat bit along the top and at that point I was fairly sure I wasn't going to make it but I kind of carried on thinking right maybe I can and then I got to the last refuge before Arnuva where I was ultimately cut off and just wasn't I wasn't going to make it so I carried on walking as best as I could but I didn't have the strength to kind of run and, and hurt myself. Mm-hmm. So I came down, came down to Arnavan knowing that I was, I was 25 minutes outside the cutoff. And I'd kind of text my mum and my sister who accrued me to say, could you come and pick me up at the top of the Val Ferry because I'm not going to make the cutoffs. Got down, started raining, and I had no signal on my phone by this point. So I, I realised on the walk down to the checkpoint with about probably 50 minutes to spare that there was no way I was going to make it. And I kind of resigned myself to that fact at that point. So I was not upset at this point, albeit thinking about it has kind of <laughs> brought back some feelings I didn't know were still there. Um, yeah, got down there and the guy was like, oh, do you need a lift down to call me? I was like, no, no, my crew's coming up. Not realising that, that it's also Val Ferry on the Swiss side. So my mum and my sister were trying to work out how to get to Switzerland to come mm-hmm. and pick me up mm-hmm. when I was still in Italy. So I then had a 10K walk down the valley by myself in the rain until they finally came and got me. So I was like, right, not only have I just been cut off, I've still got to bloody keep going. Oh my um, gosh. So, so yeah, I think I should have been fitter. I should have worked on my mobility more. But I think what is so important to understand about this experience, and for those that want to see the documentation of this, you can watch a little uh, video about it on YouTube on the Wildest Media channel. Yeah, uh, I believe the name of that experience is called Chasing the Cutoff. So you'll be hearing from my lawyers. But that being said, 
what is meaningful to me about this experience is you didn't give up. Your body gave out, but you didn't give up mentally. You pushed as hard as you could. You got cut off. You couldn't change that. That that was a circumstance outside of your control. And I'm curious if after the disappointment, obviously, because this is something you've been working toward for a long time, if you were able to process it in that way. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, it comes down to being honest with yourself, being introspective in an honest way and be able to go, you know what, on the day I did what I could. I could have done a lot more prior to the day, but once I was there with what I'd got, what I'd given myself to start that race, there's little more that I felt I could have done mm-hmm. without seriously injuring myself. I don't think there's a single racer on the planet that doesn't think they could have prepared better. I don't care who you yeah. are. We all have that thought process. Even people that quote unquote overtrain uh, think they yeah. should have trained more. So I hear you on that. So yeah, I I came out of that one obviously not happy, but not not in anywhere near the same kind of mental um, kind of mental dip that I've been in after Southdowns and, and the previous UTMB. So yeah, I suppose I was at peace with the fact that I hadn't finished, but still with a desire to to finish one day. Yeah. And that dream hadn't died and you still wanted to get it done. But unfortunately, this was the summer of 2019, quickly followed by something that was outside of everyone's control, which was the pandemic, which I'm sure put a lot of, you know, not only strain on on you and your family and everyone around you from all of the obvious reasons, but from a running and racing perspective, everything gets shut down. And I'm Curious how that impacted you and your approach and, and your thought process around getting back out there. So I just moved jobs in summer 2019, came back from UTMB into a job that I was really enjoying, met my wife about a month later. And having been comfortably single and an introvert, so not worried about other people's company that much. For, for much of my life she moved in about a month before lockdown in the uk started oh my gosh so i then came back from being away with work into lockdown the next day which was kind of a shock to the system but in a good way because yeah. i i was always unsure how i get on with cohabiting <laughs> well but, now you're uh, gonna find out <laughs> yes indeed i do find it fascinating and, and funny though that you had to learn about cohabitating in a very quick fashion uh, because of the lockdown. And of course, the lockdown is different for everyone around the world, depending on where you were. Yeah. But it sounds like you discovered that uh, you like cohabitating. You like this person. Yeah, it, it worked well. We were in, in exercise terms. We were out about for one lot of exercise a day. My diet hadn't got any better in all the time I was living by myself. I, I tend to eat my feelings in the form of large bars of chocolate and bags of crisps and mm. whatever cans of coke and stuff so being in lockdown and both of us working from home was very healthy i lost weight very quickly the sun was out for much of the time Uh, i was out running or exercising somehow cycling every day so i was very lucky to to come out of lockdown unscathed that being said the utmb dream never died but it's going to be a while before you're able to actually get back on the start line because they changed the program right so it's not points anymore now it's stones now there's the utmb world series and there's a very different approach to how you're supposed to get this done were you digging in right away when they made those changes and announcements on trying to figure out how the heck you were going to get back on the start line 
I was. And those announcements came out a while ago and the information has been out there for a while and I'm still trying to get my head around it, if I'm honest. Thank you very much. I have no idea how this works. What is an index? What is a stone? I have no clue. (laughs) So you need a qualifying distance, but you also need a lottery ticket still. And speaking of qualifying distances, that brings us to your most recent race. Yes. You went back to where you went to uni. I did. And you ran Ultra Trail Snowdonia. Yeah. And you got a shout out on the podcast. I did. Thank you. For your epic DFL finish there. But having finished, that means that you earned some sort of stone to get back to UTMB. Yes. So I got three running stones having finished within the cutoff by two whole minutes. Um, it was very inefficient of me. I could have, um, yeah, could have saved myself some effort there. <laughs> but you did it. You finished, which is amazing because with respect to your entire running and racing career, I think it's important to just celebrate these milestones along the way, right? You are improving. You are getting better. Despite the fact that you might be getting slower, you're getting smarter, you're getting more resilient and you're getting more prepared, and you're getting more experience, and I think that's awesome. Yeah, it's exciting. Things keep changing. I keep seeing things differently, and I think I can be faster. I mean, clearly there's scope scope (laughs) for me to be faster, of course, but um, I think I just need to have the consistent grit. If I could apply the, the grit it takes to get through 32 hours, 33 hours of race to life all the time, then I'd be bombing along a bit quicker. So you earn your three stones, and yeah. I, I believe the current requirement is nine and three quarter stones or something like that. I have no idea. <laughs> just kidding. So where are you on this scale of I get to enter the lottery or not? Right. So I'm, depending how you look at it, 50% there. So if you have a single running stone, you can enter the lottery and you can enter that stone in the lottery for any of the UTMB events. However, in order to be eligible to enter your stone in the event, you also need a qualifying distance. Mm-hmm. So because Ultra Trail Snowdonia was a 100k distance, that only qualifies me to enter up to uh, the CCC. Uh, CCC. Mm-hmm. So had I finished the Thames Path 100 last year, instead of quitting at 70 miles, then I would have my 100 mile qualifying distance and I would today be eligible to enter UTMB subject to mm-hmm. my running stone mm-hmm. being pulled out of the bag. But I am curious, outside of running... Do you have any other passions? I mean, are you still skiing? Is there other things you love to do? So we have a little boy now who is not quite eight, eight months old. Wow. Congratulations. He is my main passion. Yeah. I orienteer a lot, which I know is still running, but in terms of mental health in a busy job, that gives you an hour where all you're doing is looking at the map and going, right, how do I get to the next control? Mm-hmm. Um, which has been fantastic. So I, I orienteer whenever I can, but our little boy takes up most of my attention at the moment. Naturally. All right. Well, let's jump into the Chasing Cutoffs lightning round. This is fast twitch, slow twitch. I'm going to ask you several questions in a row. Would you rather come in first in 100K or DFL at UTMB? DFL at UTMB. <laughs> I thought By a mile. Say that. <laughs> That's not it. It's not even a question. <laughs> Dogs or cats? Ah, uh, neither. I'm allergic to both. Mmm. You're my very first neither. That's funny. Yeah. Sweet or salty? Sweet. I think you mentioned Mars bars, but are there any particular uh, sweet items out on the trail that you tend to crave? Yes. Percy pigs. What the heck is a Percy pig? <laughs> 
So Percy Pigs are made by Marks and Spencers, which is a British supermarket, and they are small pink pig's heads. They're not actually pig's heads, obviously, they're sweets. So there's Percy the pig, Colin the caterpillar, can't remember who else. You might have to take my word for it, I'll send you a link. Okay, yeah, please send me a link, I love it. What is your trailhead access vehicle? What are you driving? So I drive a Volkswagen Touran, which is kind of a dad wagon. It's like a seven seven seater, but where the seats fold completely flat, so I can sleep yeah. inside it. Oh, nice, nice. Well, you need the dad wagon now, right? You got the yeah. eight month old, absolutely. Yeah. Are you a naturally competitive person? Very, but I try and temper it because mm. it's not a good look on me. <laughs> where does that come out the most? So my wife doesn't like playing board games with me. Um, <laughs> there may be a reason for that. Yeah, I know the feeling. <laughs> Koros, Garmin, Sunto, or other? Garmin. Mm-hmm. Right on. I think that might be a legacy thing. But... Are you able to do trail math in your head while running? Yes and no. If it's within the same unit of measure, then yes, I can. <laughs> gotcha. So it doesn't have to be in a race or even in a run, but what is your worst injury ever? So right now I'm tempted to say my chafing at UTS. Um, <laughs> but no, I I was racing up in the Lake District back in 2004. It was an out and back race and I slipped in a puddle, landed on a rock and um, cut open my kneecap. And I thought I just banged it. But then I was coming back down the hill and saw one of my friends and saw the look on her face and kind of realized that maybe it was worse than that. Looked down and I could see my kneecap and all the veins and stuff. I was like, mm, oh my I'm gonna, gosh. I'm gonna sit down now. So yeah, I then sat pathetically and waited for someone to come and get me. Oh my <laughs> gosh, that is gnarly. In 2004, how old were you at this point? Uh, I would have been 22, I think. Oh. So that was when I was fell running still. Yeah. Obviously went to hospital. They scrubbed it with a toothbrush to get all the stuff oh. out. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just watching it, it was like that. Oh. Stitched me up and then it got infected. So then I had cellulitis in my leg. So I was kind of pen lines all on my leg to track the infection. So that, yeah, that took me out for a good few months. Oh my gosh. I'm going to have to put an explicit content warning on this episode or some kind of trigger <laughs> warning at the beginning. What is your toughest finish ever? Probably the Cumbria Way Ultra. Hmm. How long was that? That was, it was about 70 miles. Okay. But the way UTMB entry used to work is if you'd entered twice and not got a place, if you entered a third time, still with all the qualifying stuff, then you were guaranteed a place. Right. So I started the Cumbria Way Ultra knowing that if I finished it, then I had a UTMB place for my second go round. Uh So I set off on that basis. And again, within 20 miles, my hip was causing some problems. But I knew that as long as I stayed inside the cutoffs, I'd be okay. So the last probably 50 miles of that were something of a a death march. So you just pushed through the pain. Yeah, made it through. It finished at a castle as well, which was really cool. That's awesome. When things are getting really tough out there, do you have a mantra or any kind of self-talk that you say to yourself? I used to have one that was a bit rude to say. So this is not at all a healthy approach to life. Mm. Um, but I used to tell myself to man up, you fat mm. mm-hmm. Yeah, if you could bleep all of it, because <laughs> telling people to man up, it's, it's something that I'm desperately against. Ah, uh, yes. This sort of uh, toxic masculinity. Yeah, and as someone in the service, uh, as with ev- every part of the population, we have our share of problems with mental health. And part of that historically has been the approach that we shouldn't talk about our problems and, and should just uh, man up, in inverted commas. Um, and that's 
terribly, terribly unhealthy. Mm-hmm. So while I said that to myself, it's a long time since I've said that out loud to myself or to anybody else. Good. And if I heard myself 16 years ago when I joined saying that now, I'd be clapping myself around the back of the head. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you tell yourself these days that's a bit more healthy? So it's less of a less of a mantra, I think, and more that I would want my family, my wife and my son to, to be proud of me and to keep being proud of me. So if I can't finish because I'm injured or because and sometimes it is just too tough and that's okay. It's okay not to always finish, particularly if you've started because many, many people don't even start. That's powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you make a really good point too. It's something that I think is always important to remind people of is that if you're on the start line, you did it. You got there. Congratulations. So be proud. Yeah. Well, this may be a very obvious question, but perhaps not. Do you have a dream destination, adventure, or race that you really want to do? Setting aside the really obvious Mm -hmm. answer. Trans Grand Canaria would be quite cool. Oh, yeah. That just looks insane. Canary Islands, right? Yes. Yeah, amazing. Would you rather crew, pace, or volunteer at an aid station or checkpoint, as you might say? Um, I would rather volunteer. Yeah, it's so much fun. Have you had a chance to do that? No. No, I haven't. I, I keep meaning to. And then I don't get off my ass and do it. So I really need to do that for next year. Well, when you are a new parent and you have limited time off and you're trying to focus on this goal, I totally get that. But yeah, if you do get the chance, it is very rewarding and super, super fun. What is easier for you to manage on race day? A fall or GI distress? A fall. Mm. Yeah. Over into here, we fall over all the time. It's normal. GI distress. I'm familiar with that as well but that's generally a lot harder to to deal with, whether it's coming up or going down. (laughs) Either way, it's not pleasant to deal with or talk about. If you come in with a bleeding knee, you can get the people to help you. If you come in covered in something else, then that's a bit more embarrassing (laughs) to deal with. Oh, it's hilarious. Well, you have been doing this a while. You've had somewhat of a singular focus uh, trying to get this big goal done because you've seen even UTMB change a lot over the years so with the mergers and acquisitions with the you know partnership with the Ironman group and all of the growth and the focus on the elite athletes what impact do you think all of this is having or going to have on the back of the pack? So that's a really difficult question to answer because I think on balance neutral but I can see with an increase in interest in the, in the top end, the front of the pack, that feels like a good thing to incentivize people to train harder. Mm-hmm. That speeds up the front of the pack, potentially changes cutoffs if the, if the bias is more towards mm-hmm. the front. But equally, that raises awareness of the sport, which introduces the sport to those who are more inclined towards the back of the pack. Mm-hmm. So it potentially increases the participation across the board. That's really well put. I love that idea that overall, big picture, it may not have a net impact at all because you have potentially some negative, but also potentially some positive. Yeah. I actually totally agree with that. I think that's right on. It would be great if we could do more to open things up to a wider range of people, Mm -hmm. to give more people the opportunity to experience the things that we do, particularly at the, the back of the pack. Yeah. 
Well, if listeners at home want to continue following your journey, and as you focus on trying to make this UTMB dream happen, how can they find you? So my YouTube channel, which is Wildest Media, is not very active at the moment. I'm also uh, Wildest Media on Instagram, so Wildest underscore media on Instagram. Well, this has been insanely fun. I'm so glad that we got to do this. It's been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate you coming on the show. I've really enjoyed talking to you and thank you very much for having me. It's really cool and it's a privilege to be talking to you and to have been on the podium as well. Thank you so much, Ben, for coming on the show. And thank you for the deep dive into your psyche and for being so willing to share. I think it's so important for us all to understand the depths of the mental game and what it takes to accomplish these gigantic goals and how after setback after setback, what it takes to get back on the start line. So thank you again, Ben. That was so much fun. And thank you to you our faithful listeners here at the podcast. If you haven't checked out the Strava Club yet, go over to Strava and go to Chasing Cutoffs and join the club. And let's compare stats on who is uh, doing the most mileage, climbing the most vert, and most importantly, doing it the slowest. And if you want to connect with us at the show, go over to Instagram and look for Chasing Cutoffs and you can send us a message there. And until next week, wherever you are in your back of the pack journey from myself producer daisy and all of us at chasing cutoffs keep crushing the miles and let's flip the script on slow